more that we can just have human conversations and try to see other people are and understand their life experiences like it humanizes us at the same time I do think that there is something magical that women have you know um, that we're able to bring to the conversation that elevates the culture that elevates workplaces just being able to yeah see a person in front of you and say like what what's harmed you and, and where is this coming from? And how how do we work to find solutions to that and kill each other? There's this Ram Dass quote that I love that we're all just walking each other home, right? And I think when we look at it in that context, it's not a matter of trying to get somebody on your side, like just everybody walk everybody home. And the more that we are reasonable um, and a safe place for other people, like I find they come to me and they, they often share these like heart hurts with me. And a lot of times I don't even have a solution to it, but I can listen. And even just listening, letting them say stuff out loud removes shame. We are two unique female professionals and friends that have come together to have meaningful conversations and a little fun along the way. Welcome to the Arable Podcast, where curious minds grow. I'm your host, Jenna Mountain. And I'm your other host, Kimberly Galindo. Okay. Uh, today, um, I have the uh, privilege and joy, and I'm super excited about having, um, Destiny with us today. Uh, it actually, it might be interesting to kind of unpack how we know each other, um, over a lot of years. Um, but Destiny is the founder and president of New Way Feminist, a pro-life feminist organization, uh, that believes every human being should be, uh, should live, uh, a life free from violence from womb to tomb. Uh, Destiny is active in the community, fighting for human rights, leading philanthropic efforts, and participating in conversations that invite people into deeper thinking and challenge conventions, which is why we are so excited to have you here today, Destiny. That is exactly what we want to unpack with you, Um, just the change that you are uh, bringing into the world, um, which I really appreciate deeply. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, Destiny, thank you so much. We're so excited. I can't wait to jump in. Um, Can you just share with our audience a little bit about yourself, your story, introduce yourself, whatever feels best for you, personal, professional, all of it, some of it. Um, They would love to know and we'd love to share. Yeah, I'm great at word salad, so let's go. Um, (laughs) So I have a group called New Wave Feminist. Uh, I'm based here in Dallas. Uh, although we have chapters in South America as well. Um, Basically, our focus is on, uh, we follow something called the consistent life ethic, which uh, Jenna alluded to. So just this belief that human beings should be free from violence for the duration of their lifetime. And that means we're anti-war, anti-death penalty. Um, We take on human trafficking, domestic abuse, sexual assault. And then we extend that into the womb by also opposing abortion, but not in the way that people are used to. Um, I think a lot of people, when they think of that issue, they think of people trying to take rights away and that type of thing. And we honestly don't focus on the laws. Um, We focus a lot more on how do we support women so well that they can continue their pregnancies? Because when you really start looking at the structures of academia and the workplace, it does not accommodate our fertility. 
And so we always say we're not working to make abortion illegal. We're working to make it unnecessary and unthinkable, right? Because women are so well supported Mm. in our society. And this comes from my personal experience. My mom got pregnant with me when she was 19 years old at the University of Texas and uh, ended up having to, you know, she she chose to, to continue her pregnancy, but that meant leaving school, moving back home, you know, experiencing a lot of trials ended up taking her a decade to finish her education and we experienced poverty and stuff during that time and and just looking at that through a feminist lens growing up that seemed very unjust to me you know that she couldn't continue her pregnancy and also her education and um so life was really difficult growing up and we had a lot of struggles that just seemed unnecessary had society fully um, kind of supported female fertility more And I ended up pregnant myself at 16, kind of repeating this cycle, which was an incredibly difficult thing because I knew how hard it was as the child to go through this. And here I was as the woman on the other side of it, um, repeating this cycle. And, uh, you know, nobody could have been more upset with me than I was myself. And so seeing kind of how the the classical pro-life movement a lot of times, like, yells at women and treats women, honestly, that would have felt good to me at that point. Like I hated myself so deeply for now bringing another human being into this situation. And I think all of these things kind of culminated to create what New Wave Feminist is today. You know, I've been both the fetus and the scared pregnant woman uh, facing an unplanned pregnancy. And I know what ultimately helped me was just love and support of my community and people surrounding me. And so I tell people all the time when I have a woman who is considering an abortion decision, who calls me up and you know, doesn't know what to do. I'm not like, oh, let me, let me call Ted Cruz and see what his opinion is on this. Like, that's never the next step. Like, it's always, what do you need right now? Like, it's triage. Like, what do you need? Do you need a place to stay? Um, So many of the women that uh, I knew during high school who who were becoming pregnant, like, it wasn't a choice for them. Their parents were kicking them out. Like, they were going to have nothing. They didn't have access to quality healthcare. And so um, just taking all of that information in, we started New Wave Feminist um, with the focus of doing it differently and then also expanding it to this whole life ethic. Um, and so we work a lot at the border with migrant women um, who have actually become pregnant through sexual assault, which is incredibly hard. You know, uh, that is always kind of the gotcha question people throw out during arguments. But we find that when you know the women, when you humanize people and understand them and find out what the needs are, like, there are women who, who surprisingly, actually a huge chunk of the time want to continue their pregnancies. They just need support. And so then you start getting into, you know, the, the politics of asylum seeking and all these other things. And we've never been able to just stick to one issue. They are so intertwined. There are so many different like cultural things that need to be addressed. And that that is what New Wave Feminists is these days is constantly evolving and growing and finding other groups of people who don't necessarily agree with us on everything, but what do you agree on us uh, about? And and where can we work together here to support uh, just human beings in general um, across the globe? That's amazing. I could go a hundred directions with where you just went. Um, Word salad. I told you I'm really good at them. I, you're so good at it. You just killed it. Okay. Um, so I want to hang out here for a bit. Um, I'm sure Kimberly might as well and kind of go back to some things that you said and really sit with them. You, you at one point you said, um, we're doing it differently. And, um, 
an, another phrase that you said was opposing in a way that people aren't used to. I, I think, uh, so let me back up. Uh, Destiny and I went to um, middle school together. Um, so that's where we first crossed paths. <laughs> that's like how far back this goes. <laughs> and, um, and then I actually switched schools. So we didn't go to the next year of middle school together. And then, um, honestly, my recollection of high school was it was so big. I can't remember a, a lot of um, some of those dynamics. So, um, but I remember uh, kind of you in and out of um, the picture of my academic. We, we didn't run in the same circles, um, but we reconnected later on Facebook. And I started watching what you were up to. <laughs> and I was... Um, really trying to find my words here. I was really captivated at what you were doing. Um, this idea that you would oppose the thing that you really had an issue with, but to do it in a different way, um, just was captivating to me. And I sat back and of course, by the time we had reconnected, I had gone through kind of my training, um, and gone into the mental health world. And that definitely changes the way that you think in a lot of ways. And I just sat back and said, I wish more people were having, having conversations like she's willing to do and partnering in the way she's willing to partner. Like you don't only partner with people who are exactly in the, all, all of the, whatever belief systems, whatever that you are, you're willing to partner, um, with people over, over a cause and realize that there's still a lot of human, um, facets and uniquenesses and some differences that'll show up in that space. And I just sat back and watched you do that so incredibly well and beautifully. So I, you don't even know this, but like, I, I had a little bit of a girl crush on you for a while. I was like, just sink it back. And I was like, this chick is just really rumbling with the world. Well, and I was just so appreciative. So first of all, I want to, I just want to pay you that affirmation. Thank you. That says something because you've seen me in braces. So I don't think anybody who's seen me in braces <laughs> had a girl crush on me. That's very exciting um, to know that I was able to bounce back from those awkward junior high years. Um, yeah. And yeah, you know, I think, I think there, there was a long time where we were kind of towing the line and doing what we thought we were supposed to do by being part of quote unquote, the pro-life movement. And then there just came this moment where I was like, this isn't working. And if our whole goal is to humanize the unborn child in the womb, like we have to be able to humanize the people we're talking to and not make monsters out of them and not treat the other mm -hmm. side this way. And I think that was a huge shift happened. And I used to joke that we went from being like the black sheep of the movement to straight up blacklisted by them. And it was kind of like, yes, you did even pro-life and but there's something really liberating and freeing when you break out of this mold of like what you're supposed to be doing and you're supposed to be locking step with these other people, even if you don't agree with them. Like when you start kind of having your own ideas and opinions and saying, I'm going to try it this way. I'm going to see if this works. Mm -hmm. And you realize that you're kind of uncancelable. We live in such a cancel culture where people are like, oh, this is the end of you. But here's the deal. If you just keep doing it, then it's amazing how I, I've overcome like three cancelings now. It's very exciting, like highlight in my life. Uh -huh. Like you should you should create an online course and like make lots of dollars. How to get canceled and survive. Uncancelables, yeah. And but there's so much for it's just recognizing the human dignity of the person that you're talking to and understanding where they're coming from. Like I don't spend a lot of time with people who think like me, honestly, because that's just 
I don't know if I'm allowed to say circle jerk, how classy your podcast is, but that's what it ends up becoming is just like this kind of, oh, you're so great. Yeah, da, da, da. And us all boosting up each other's arguments. It's much more effective for me as an activist to talk to someone who is pro-choice or opposed to, um, you know, the, the immigration issues I care about or, you know, somebody who's a blue lives matter where I'm black lives matter. Like I want to hear what they're talking about. I want to hear what their concerns are. I want to understand why it is that they're so afraid to even consider what it is that we're talking about, because then I can, I can adapt to that. Right. I can, I can, I mean, I think Mm -hmm. a lot of it honestly has pushed my activism in a more organic place where it's supposed to go. Because when I hear people talking about, you know, um, sexual assault, domestic abuse, healthcare, healthcare is a big issue. Like, well, I can only get my healthcare from a place that also is an abortion provider and realizing, yeah, there's a huge issue in our community where we're not offering those services. You're talking about being against something, but not being for something. You're not actively helping women who lack quality healthcare, you know, find other alternatives. Um, it is just boosted my activism in all these ways. And I think at the root of it is you put you put people over politics. You see people like for mm-hmm. the just intricate, fascinating human beings they are and that they all have a life just as elaborate as your own. And they all have experiences and reasons that got them to this place and why they're thinking that. And sometimes you can help heal them on that journey. And sometimes they end up healing parts of you on that journey just by like being able to connect in that way and have those real human conversations that are not talking points, you know, and bumper Mm -hmm. slogans. And this is how I'm voting. Like, no, like get to the heart of people and you'll find you have much more in common uh, than you think. So Kimberly and I have been having a conversation in the background of just some of the climate of the last 12 plus months as we continue to, you know, move through these experiences. And um, what we have discussed, and Kimberly, you, you can put your own words to this, is this idea of, I don't, I don't think many people realize that they are living in echo chambers. And um, like, and I, 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 I do think we seek that out in our human nature and I don't think we realize we're doing it and I don't think we realize we're in it. And it very much so um, does rob us on so many levels. Yeah, I would say that. I think like a big part of it is we're so ingratiated in online culture and so you find yourself like arguing with people all day long on the internet. So then when you're finally around your friends, like you just want that validation. Like I was right. Right. You know, like these, these comments that are keeping me up at night that I can't sleep about because maybe they kind of were onto something like, but just affirm me, tell me I was right. And I'll just keep going. And I think that we're almost doing it backwards. Like save the affirmations for the online stuff. Like the real human conversations you have with people need to be different. I speak at colleges a lot. And one of the kind of action items I give at the end of my talk is go out for coffee sometime this week with someone who disagrees with you on a major issue, um, something big, and do not try to persuade them. Just listen to them. Ask them as many questions as you can, because I think being like the most powerful words in our human language is help me understand. So what are you coming from? And help me understand how you got there. And you will end up leaving um, so much more fulfilled with an understanding of like your human, you know, um, brothers and sisters, then you will this, this argument where you try to persuade somebody and it's, first of all, it's never going to happen online. Like never, never just stop. Everyone stop doing that. It's the worst and it ruins Facebook. Agreed. Um, but then on top of that, like 
you need to be able, especially when you're having serious conversations about convictions people hold very deeply, to be able to look them in the eye and say, like, help me understand. Like, why is it that you got to this point on this issue? And you're going to hear heartbreaking stories and things that are deficits in your own beliefs. And it's going to make you um, a stronger person and more affirmed in whatever your beliefs are, or it's going to change the, the ones that you have wrong and you need to kind of move on. But then you're also going to lose that defensiveness. Like my grandparents have had this Reader's Digest um, cartoon up on their fridge forever that I think literally is the blueprint for how I live my life. And it's this old, old man being interviewed by this young reporter in this cartoon. And he says, you know, you're 115. Tell me how you did this. And the old man responds, I eat an apple a day and I don't argue with people. And the reporter says back, well, there's no way that's all it took. And the old man says, you might be right. And then that's it, right? Like, there's so <laughs> much where it's just like we have this like intensity um, with other people. And that's why we see this divide in our country and this divide happening during a pandemic when we already feel isolated and don't have mm -hmm. like, the community we need. And then on top of that, you just have this anger and frustration because all you can do is look at people through screens all the time. And I think it is it is why we're seeing, you know, depression and addiction and everything else kind of run rampant right now. And so the more that we can just have human conversations and try to see other people for who, who they mm -hmm. are and understand their life experiences, like it humanizes us at the same time. Well, and what's coming up for me, Destiny, is one of my favorite words, and that's congruence. I hear a lot of congruence in what you're saying. That's like um, an because... algebra word. That sounds like algebra. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So explain it to me better so that, help me understand congruency in psychology. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me go into the counseling uh, coaching space here for a second. Um, when I say congruence, what I mean is you talk about your heart, your values, your story, and the way that you interact with people, the way in which you, the how you are an activist, and it is very congruent. What I mean by congruence is that your values, your mission, your focus, all things that could seem really, I don't know, boxes to check if you're going to be about a work, uh, you know, whether that's activism or you know, profession or whatnot. In the how and then in kind of what you say, it matches. When you talk about the value that you have for life and the value that you have for every life that stands in front of you, that is very congruent, and I think that that is something that, um, amongst a lot of things that you said that are that are really um, firing off inside of me right now, but the congruence piece was was really important. I think that we, we, we're all experiencing, I think, this dissonance. I hear the words, and then I'm having an experience, and it doesn't quite match, and it's not just because we don't agree, right? I'm sitting in front of someone going, oh, gosh, okay, I don't and this is tense, it's more than that. And I can't help but think, oh, wow, the how you do that, those conversations seem to be, I don't know, more life-giving, more connecting, because you're, you're, you're congruent, you're about people over politics, you want to hear their story. You don't, it's, it's less about data exchange and let me just come in with, I've got my four points ready to go as soon as you stop talking to obliterate you. We talk about this, and we've got an episode um, 
about this, when we talk about couples, we talk about like healthy relationships and I'm, everything that you're describing, I'm going, this is how to be a healthy human. I, I keep going, maybe we yeah. should have Destiny come in and teach our couples how to treat each other because this is like super helpful. Oh, my husband would get yeah. such a laugh out of that. Let me just tell you. That was <laughs> take home tonight. Like, it'll be like, yes, sure. Yeah, you do that, Des. Let's see how that works out. No, I, I mean. No, but the inside matches the outside, and it's neat. Like, you have these inside values, and you're trying to behave in a way on the outside with everybody that you interact with that lines up with that. And congruence, I'll add this layer, congruence adds safety. And... um. If I could be so bold, I know you are you are known for having a spicy personality and really pushing people out of their comfort zones, but I also think that your congruence creates safety for people. I and maybe maybe that's what it is because I will say I've had this happen time and again where I mean, you know, I put all of my thoughts and feels on the internet like too much, too much. Uh, and then, I enjoy it. I, I, please stop. Please don't stop. Please don't. <laughs> well, yeah, I think maybe just because you're a counselor, so you're used to a lot of thoughts and feels. I think there are people who definitely like clutch their pearls all the time with my thoughts. But, you know, I, everybody knows where I stand on issues. And yet time and again, I will have parents reach out and be like, hey, can we get our kids together for a play date? And I'm like, I don't even think my kid likes your kid that much. Like, why? Okay, sure. And we go to the park. And a woman will tell me about her abortion story or struggling with domestic mm. or something like that. And it kind of blows my mind because in certain cases it makes sense. But in other cases, I'm like, you would, I mean, I would think that somebody with my opinions might be judgmental towards that or whatever, but I'm not. And so I'm glad that they see that and that it really does. I think that taking it out of just this like head belief and making it a heart belief, like this is just mm-hmm. my personal experience. Like I've lived through this. I've been on both sides of it. And so I don't pass judgment to women who've been through that. Like I see them as kind of victims of a society that has pushed them towards a lot mm. of decisions and they are not the enemy. Like these structures are the enemy. These structures need to be taken down because I'm watching them hurting and reeling from these things that they felt they had to do. And yep. are these relationships that they had to stay in because there was no safe way for them to get out of it. Right. And I think that just being a human being, because um, as as you said, Kimberly, like getting away from the um, the boxes that you have to check, right? And I think that we as a culture, uh, because of 24-hour just nonstop news and all this stuff, it's like we've been brainwashed. Here's if, if you're on this side, this is what you have to believe. And even if you're uncomfortable with some of it, this is the, the talking points we need you to recite at all times. And don't challenge them. Don't think about them. Like, just go with this. Um, and then you have the other side that it's polar opposites, right? And I pull stuff from both sides that I think are humanizing issues and, and places where we need to be working on. And so, you know, kind of being kicked out of, what I would say, kicked out of the pro-life movement. Like, I didn't get an official letter, but I definitely had a lot of people who were like, she's done in this movement. And then also leaving my political party and becoming an independent and being like, I mm-hmm. now be a pain in everyone's butt, like on both sides, I get to challenge both sides because I don't have this blind loyalty to one thought process. Like my only loyalty is to my convictions that human beings are important and every single life has value. And how am I going to advocate for that outside of um, these, these thought silos that we're all kind of stuck in right now. And it was scary at first when I first, um, you know, 
I, all of my friends were part of a political party and that's where my world kind of was. And so when I stepped out, I was like, I'm going to feel so powerless. I'm not going to have this like tribe anymore mm. of people that I work with. And the exact opposite happened. Like it was one of the most empowering things that I had ever done because I no longer had to be inauthentic in certain areas or stay silent on certain areas because those things piss people off. Right. Like I was just able to say like, this is what I see as, as truth and compassion. And this is what we need to be doing. And this is where we need to be working and donating and giving our time and talents. And, um, and then all of a sudden people started being drawn to that other people who kind of came out and were like, I have thought that same thing too. And I hate the way that, you know, this side talks about this or this side talks about this. And we've just given them kind of this safe space where they can just live, live by their own convictions of, you know, what human dignity is and what the world needs to look like. And I don't feel alone at all anymore. I feel like we've built this like ragtag army of people who just like get it, you know, and I feel like the rest of the world's kind of in black and white and they're in technicolor, like the stuff they see, Mm -hmm. the, the things that they've been able to do through their activism. Like it has been so incredibly cool just because I have a Facebook page that you guys used to be a MySpace. That's how old New Wave Feminist is. We started on MySpace with like three people. I what was your background wallpaper and your like theme song? Because that's what I remember about MySpace. Like, I won't even tell you because it was definitely Dashboard Confessional. And that's <laughs> mock the crap out of me for that. Um, it, yeah, no. But it was like we started there and then looking at where it's become like I never in a million years thought it would be this way. And so people ask me all the time, like, when did New Wave Feminist start? And I'm like, MySpace era, like, I don't even know, because this was never supposed to become this huge thing. But it was clearly filling this need, um, especially with like more conservative and religious women who, you know, it's so funny, because you would think that I would take more crap from the pro-choice side for being pro-life, but that's not true. It's the pro-life side for calling myself a feminist. Like, there is there's a lot of stigma around this word, you know, and being a feminist. And yet, I meet feminists every single day and they're out there doing the work and stuff. And we basically gave them permission and said like, no, lean into that, lean into that, like be a world changer, like be a good troublemaker, like do all this stuff that you're supposed to be doing, like, and, and oppose things when they're wrong, even if you've been told that you're not supposed to. Right. And so through that, I think we have created our own kind of third way in this community. Um, that's really, it's really been beautiful to watch it happen. Could you, for our for our audience, um, kind of describe in your own words new new wave feminism and just kind of just you you've touched on it um, as as we've started the conversation, but just in your words, what is new wave? Yeah, feminism. So I would say that you know for most of history, women were treated as property. And thankfully, we've made strides. Um, We're not done yet, but we've made big strides and we have, you know, our rights and liberation. And I think through that strength that we've gained, we need to use it to protect other vulnerable populations, right? Like, we don't, um, when it comes to, you know, mental health, right? That's a big one. Veterans, people dealing with housing insecurity, um, migrants, like any other group. And you see a lot of feminists doing this. That's exactly what they're doing. They're saying, let me find the marginalized population and how do we care for them? We just also add the unborn child because I think, I I think for me, it is that fact that if we were treated as property and we're overcoming that, then we can't pass that same oppression down to the unborn child. And so that's kind of the one unique thing that I think new wave feminist adds to this argument. But at the same time, um, the way that it's historically been done in the pro-life movement is very fetus focused in a lot of ways. And it's very much like the baby, the baby, the baby. But I, as 
as someone who's been both the fetus and the woman, like the the focus has to be on the woman. I mean, just as just as much. It can't be forty nine fifty one. It honestly needs to be a hundred percent, hundred percent on both both lives there. And saying like, how do we make sure that we are helping this woman, supporting this woman, empowering this woman um, to to make a choice that she's comfortable with? Mm-hmm. And um, and so that's where I would say new wave feminist is kind of unique. In a lot of ways, we're we're just like most traditional. Um, feminist with a lot of the stuff that we're trying to do. Um, but obviously once you throw that, the, the abortion issue in, because it has become so synonymous with feminism since like the seventies, um, a lot of people don't understand it. But like I said, if, if the other side is truly pro-choice and not pro-abortion, which they tell me all the time, I'm not pro-abortion, I'm pro-choice. Then what are we doing to make sure that women have choices, true choices? Because we know that Guttmacher said it's over 60% of women will make an abortion decision based on financial constraints. So is that actually a decision a woman's making or is that mm. a societal issue where she feels like she has no choice but abortion? And that's something that I think needs to be addressed. We can't just say, okay, let's let's stick with the status quo because um, it's going to be easier for businesses and you know colleges and everything else not to have to step up and rise to this challenge. But I think as women... That is what we have to be doing. You know, there's there's this kind of toxic um, feminism, I would say, that says we want equality with men. And the solution has been men are pigs, so we're going to be pigs too. We're going to lower ourselves to mm-hmm. the standard that's not better. And what we're saying is no, like the feminine genius, like the stuff that women have inside of them is going to push cultures higher, the world higher. Like this is going to be a global shift in consciousness where we need to say, this is the standard we're at. This is what we uh, we expect society to accommodate women. We currently live in a world that was designed by men for men, and it really doesn't accommodate us. And so we are sticking with the status quo when we accept that as a solution, that we need to fit into this male normative system, and the male normative body is kind of what we're all trying to conform to. And and we don't even just see it with males, right? We see it with whiteness. That's a, that's a big thing that I think so much of us are becoming aware of now, that um, we have these standards that we expect other people to fit into rather than, you know, looking in the medical community, for example, and saying, why is it that women of color are dying at a higher rate with infant and maternal mortality rates? Like, why is that happening? It's because the system has been built around a white male body. And so we are not actually focusing on the marginalized groups within um, our culture and saying, like, no, that's what true equity looks like is getting everybody up to this level. And I think women are in a position where we can raise that standard and then let society know, like, we're not going to deal with cop-outs anymore. We expect you to come along with us and actually change these structures that are not working well for, for women and families and other marginalized groups. Right. Um, so another word salad, but I would say that's kind of new wave feminist and our goal, um, I used to be so much better at that. I could give like a 30 second speech because y'all are making No, no, no. This is not, this is not your elevator speech time. We like it. All all the details about all the stuff that, (laughs) that we want to change in the world right now. But I like, I like that you expanded it for us and our audience. And I like, I like that you're touching on some things. Um, You know, I think the term feminism has changed over the years and is experienced differently by different groups. So I'm glad that you talked about, you know, there's an unhealthy way to lean into that, that that has not been helpful. You know, the the part that sticks out to me, and I literally am like just giddy inside, like we could just probably talk for hours and hours and hours, um, is that 
you really have in this, um, I think really beautiful way, um, been willing to be a frontline person in disrupting sim uh, systems and conventions. And so what I mean by that, some of the things that you said, like, I'm not just trying to be like a man um, in the system, in the way I solve a problem, in the way I see the problem. You know, I'm pulling myself out um, and saying, well, maybe um, there, maybe I will see it differently because of my personal experience as, um, in this case, you know, a woman and, and be able to go, well, actually, I wouldn't even define the problem the same way. And because I don't define the problem the same way and I see the system differently, um, actually, my solution doesn't even fit into a category that we've had out on the table. And I, I think that that is what we need. Um, Kimberly, you and I were exchanging about an article that came out. Was it Harvard? I can't remember. Female leadership? Yeah, it was a, it was a Harvard uh, research study done um, with female leaders um, specifically focusing on leadership and feedback from those they lead during the pandemic. And the fact that it was wildly successful, can I say in comparison? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. that women were leading differently in crisis, that women were coming up with solutions differently in crisis, and that there, there was pretty significant evidence that it was working. And so I, I love what you're doing and what you're saying and, and what you're describing as kind of the way of new, new way feminism is, hey, we're willing to, I mean, not just get outside of the box, but pretty much obliterate it because it's not working. I mean, it's just not working. The boxes aren't working. And I have to say, so I had this epiphany this week while talking to a friend um, that kind of goes with what you're saying, where um, we were talking about, you know, kind of the feminine and the masculine, right? And I have never considered myself feminine in any way. Um, I tend to have more kind of masculine attributes. Like, I mean, I shave my legs, but that's kind of where that ends. Like, I'm not like a frilly girl in any way. And so I had this intern who um, I had helped him get a job. I had given a, a job reference and really hit it off with the HR lady. So he gets the job and he sends me a video chat and he's thanking me. And he goes, I just want to thank you because you're just the most um, like, feminine, uh, like feminine person I know. And you just, you do so, um, much with like your, uh, femininity and, and he totally was trying to say feminism, but like, couldn't put it in the right, like con context for it. And so he said this twice and I'm cracking up. And so I respond back and I'm like, congratulations. You're the first person who's ever called me feminine in my entire life. Like, good job. And so I was talking to this friend about this conversation and she said, that's so strange that you think that because I think you are one of the most feminine people I know. I think you're looking at femininity the wrong way. And I was like, well, I just, it's the, it's the girly crap. Like I don't do girly crap. Like I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm not good at it. Like I'm loud and kind of abrasive. And I definitely like let my opinions be known. And she goes, why are you attributing that to masculinity? When you say that, like, why, why are you making 100%. that a little thing? And I was just like, holy crap, you're exactly right. That's totally what I'm doing. And she said, I can't think of anybody who's doing more feminine work. Like you're doing it with compassion and, you know, loving, loving women and children and this like protective, like maternal instinct and stuff. And she's like, that is at the root of femininity. We've just been, you know, uh, 
basically groomed by society to think that femininity is being docile and quiet and having her nails painted all the time and, you know, lipstick on. Seen and not heard, which is how we've referred to children sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And so it totally flipped it on my head. Like I haven't completely fleshed out what I'm sure will be a long ass blog post when I finally make it. But it was an interesting thing um, to start thinking about, like just working in that energy. And honestly, I think like the energy is just whatever each of us hold. Right. And so we talk a lot about toxic uh, masculinity, but I would argue that there's toxic femininity too. Um, you know, we were just down at the border and uh, talking about when you cross back over the border agents that are kind of harder on um, groups of people coming through. And the volunteer, my board member that we work with, she was like, it's always the women. They feel like they have to be like the most ruthless and hardest to fit into this like man's world type thing. And so when we talk about toxic masculinity, mm. that men can't cry and men can't express emotions or have that nurturing side or whatever. And we want to get rid of that. But I think the feminist movement as a whole, we're doing the exact same thing where you can't cry at work. You can't be emotional. You can't care about the livelihood of people that you're about to fire or whatever else is going to happen. And when we lean into that strength and realize that is a superpower, that maybe we have something just intrinsically um, that others don't, that is going to give us that empathy and that ability to connect with others. Like, I think that's kind of our true femininity and feminism and all, all the F words, um, all wrapped into one. And it's just, it's, it's being authentic. And I do think that there is something magical that women have, you know, um, that we're able to bring to the conversation that elevates the culture, that elevates workplace you know um so I'm not surprised by that study because yay feminism and stuff I agree with you I um so as sex therapists because that's what we do um you know we're oftentimes um working with women who are trying to like find a place of flourishing in their sexuality and I am I'm a big uh, I'm a big believer that most women aren't flourishing in their sexuality because they're too busy trying to be men. So I think this trickles down. Oh my gosh, that's a hundred percent what it is. So I was just talking to a friend this morning, kind of about like the hookup culture and stuff. Cause I was a big part of for a long time. Cause I grew up in the Cosmo mindset of like, we can do it exactly like this. Sure. And as long as I don't call that guy before he doesn't call me, then I'm, I'm this liberated bad bitch or whatever. And like, I remember having that mindset so um, strongly that I did a lot of damage to myself and to my sexuality and carried a lot of shame sure. and stuff because I was not capable of that. And I think a better model would be explaining just the natural physiology of how we actually interact with people, right? Like oxytocin levels from touching and interacting and like orgasms and all of these other things. Like, I think that's vitally important because had I been given that message instead that maybe don't hook up with this guy. I had a guy who, who harmed me, um, really on in, in that relationship. And I didn't like him. I wasn't attracted to him, but because that had happened and he, he sexually assaulted me in my brain, I thought, okay, maybe I can make this less ugly. Maybe if I continue a relationship with him and I ended up basically dating a guy who had raped me, which is insane. But it was like at the time, um, you know, I was, I was, single and pregnant. He knew I was pregnant and couldn't get me more pregnant, I guess. And that's why it happened. And I, um, felt incredibly vulnerable. And I always described it like I had this brownie sash of 
kind of victim things on me, right? Like I'm mm. pregnant and all this, and I couldn't add, you know, rape survivor to it. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't even say the word. It took me a decade to finally acknowledge, like I was crying. I said, no, this happened. Um, and that's what that was. But I tried to make it less ugly. I, I wanted to fix it. And so I was like, maybe if I just keep seeing him or something like it will retroactively make it not sexual assault. Like that's what will happen. And I came out and started talking about it um, a couple years ago. And I was blown away by the number of women who said they had done the exact same thing. They had had like a date rape type experience and then continued on. And it in so many ways, like broke my sexuality because it took it from being this special thing between two people and made it like a weapon and something that I could use to wield for, for power or to harm others. Yep. And so when I started looking at the fact though, that um, eventually I did grow some affinity to this person that I, I wasn't even attracted to and I didn't really like and had harmed me, but I now felt attached to him. Um, that's, that is a pretty strong chemical response to override. And I told myself I didn't, right? In my head, like, no, I'm like Cosmo. Like this, I can, I can do it just like men can do it and it's not a big thing. And so now I've got these friends who are dealing with the same thing where, you know, you see online, everybody talking about, oh, don't catch feels. Like, guess what? You are going to catch feels when you are having this intimate relationship with somebody and being vulnerable and accepting them into your body. Like you are going to catch feels. And rather than lying to women and saying we won't and we can do this just like our male counterparts, I think empower women and say like, no, this connection will happen. This is the reason why it's the glue to so many marriages because there, Goldie Hawn talked about that, um, that she was on Oprah one time and she said, this is the key to a good relationship. And you're, if you're in the middle of a fight, just have sex. Cause then suddenly whatever they did won't piss you off as much. And like, you'll be willing to forgive them. Right. Like it's kind of this magic eraser for a lot of transgressions, but the problem is it can also be a magic eraser for domestic abuse and toxic relationships and things you shouldn't stay in because it, it bonds you, um, so strongly with people. I, I have, you know, two sons and two daughters. And so that's what I tell them. Like, this is an incredibly powerful connection that you're having with somebody else when it comes to being vulnerable. And that's what you need to protect. Like, yeah, I'm worried about STDs and pregnancy and stuff like that too. But honestly, your heart is the thing that we don't have prophylactics for. And that's what I'm more worried about is, is, that connection because so many women are trying to be men rather than us saying, no, the problem is this dehumanization and this very like, you know, powerful act that we have downgraded to just friction, you know? And I think that's why for a lot of people, it's incredibly unfulfilling because it's just, it's just friction. Yep. there's nothing else. It's just mechanics. There. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And I think that women bring a really beautiful, I don't know. I, I'm going a hundred directions, which I'm enjoying. I I think women, when they really get to be themselves, and I, honestly, I, I have a small working theory that we almost need to incubate a generation of women to let them find that again. I don't know if any of us truly um, have found that again because we're constantly, and I'm going to use a word uh, that some circles are not, but deconstructing what we know and trying to put it back together and, and heal. But I, I think we're, I would make a gentle argument that we're all finding our, our femaleness. Um, and in that, um, we're, I love, I love your language. Uh, we're breaking toxic femininity where we've been too concerned trying to be something that we're not. Um, and I think the other unhealthy thing, um, and I am, I am 
frustrated with with system patriarchal systems and misogyny and all of those things. But I also think that true healing is where we can go both both sexes and genders have these great things that are supposed to be welcomed and honored and respected and celebrated and bring the best out in each other. So I also think there's like an attack that happens sometimes that gets messy. And then we just stay in this really messy thing, which pulls us away from what you talked about in the beginning, which is like losing sight of the human in front of us. We just have this nasty cycle of like, we're just losing sight of the human in front of us. And it makes me sad to think about because I don't think any of us are truly flourishing in that type of context and in cycle and dynamic. Right. We're walking through so much baggage and trauma and then putting that on to other people. And I think, you know, that's why I always tell people like to stop fighting on Facebook because I'm like, here's the deal. I'm going to be the next person that that person you just fought with, like that they talk to about these issues. Like I'm going to get the backlash of the argument you had and I'm going to have to de-escalate like all of the crazy that you, you spit out, you know, when, when we're constantly just attacking people, because I don't, I don't do that. When people attack me online, I'm like, okay, right. I, I use my grandparents reader's digest cartoon. And I'm like, you might be right. I don't know. Like, I don't know everything. I think that's the beauty of being in my thirties now is in my twenties. Oh my God. I knew everything y'all. I had so many blogs that I've forgotten passwords to that. I'm horrified if anyone finds them. Like I knew everything. And then in my thirties, I realized like, you don't know anything and maybe like have some humility when you go into conversations now and you might learn something. And that's been the most beautiful thing about getting older, but just being able to, yeah, see a person in front of you and say like, what, what's harmed you and, and where is this coming from and how, how do we work to find solutions to that and heal each other? There's this Ram Das quote that I love that we're all just walking each other home. Right. And I think when we look at it in that context, it's not a matter of trying to get somebody on your side, like just everybody walk everybody home. And the more that we are reasonable um, and a safe place for other people, like I find they come to me and they they often share these like heart hurts with me. And, and a lot of times I don't even have a solution to it, but I can listen. And even just listening, letting them say stuff out loud removes shame. Every single time that I think like we share something uh, it takes that layer of shame off and makes us kind of stronger. And then these horrible experiences, like I've, I've been through grief and poverty and abuse and all these things in my life. And there are things that I could easily be stuck in and could have destroyed me. But somehow through just the way the universe works, like I've had the right people put in my life at the right time where I've been able to use that pain to actually help them. I'm not super far ahead, but I'm a couple steps ahead and I know what got me through it and maybe this can get you through it too. And that is not politics. That's not arguing some side, right? Like that is just being a human to other humans. And honestly, I feel like that's the most pro-life thing that I could be doing is realizing the value of the lives in front of me and humanizing other people. Like that's what's going to ultimately create this, this, global shift in consciousness that we're trying to um, to go towards that I think is ultimately going to make a big change in the world. Well, and it's it's what you were saying earlier. I think it's more about what you're for versus what you're against. I think sometimes when we're, whether it's we're against women, we're against men, we're against pro-choice, pro-life, on and on and on and on, we lose the human in front of us. We lose really any productive movement if we're wanting to do anything productive if we're wanting to get anywhere um, when the goal is what I'm against and me being right it is so disruptive and it's so destructive 
um, versus what are we for? Um, and that that's what I hear in a lot of what you're saying. Yeah, that's that's a hundred percent my mama. She like a decade ago said that to me because I was going on some rant about something, and she's like, "It's not about being against stuff; it's about being for stuff. What can you be for?" And that was a pivotal moment for me. Like, yeah, how can I make the world a better place? Like, and that's the Texan in me, right? Like you always want to leave a place like nicer than you found it type deal. And so I think if we all tried that, you know, there's so much where it's like we put this power in government and policies and these huge things. But if everybody in our lives just loved two people well, like the two closest people, whether it's in your household or your neighbors or just somebody in your community, like get out and love people well, like we will be the ones saving ourselves. We won't need these big, like, you know, powers that be to save us or to fix things. Like we can save ourselves just by caring about people deeply in our own community. And I think so often we spend so much time talking about these big picture ideas and putting this angry energy out into the universe when really, if we took that same amount of time to drive a mom to a doctor's appointment, you know, or, um, tip somebody extra who's done yard work for us, you know, whatever it is, like see them, have a conversation, take them a glass of lemonade and talk to them, see them as human beings. The group that we work with down at the border um, is called Hosnos Belair, and that translates to make us count. And the reason she chose that name is because she said so many of these migrants after, you know, nine months of like this long journey, like fleeing violence and persecution, all these horrible things, just trying to get to safety and get their families to safety. Like, they're so used to people not looking them in the eyes and not seeing them. And so she said, uh, she's one of my board members now, but she said, if we can get people to volunteer at the shelter, even if they don't speak like Spanish, have them come down and share a meal with somebody and just humanize that person and see them, like make them count, make them feel like humans, because that's the feedback she's getting from the families she helped is I haven't had anybody like look me in the eye in, in months. And like, you guys see me, like you see me, like I, think we don't realize our own power in just making other people count. And we can do that every single day. Um, we are not the star of this movie and everyone else's extras. Everybody is the star of their own movie, right? And you get to be around the star of the movie when you're interacting with people who you might not even make eye contact with. And I think that it's just such a beautiful, powerful thing that all of us can do if we get rid of the distractions and the biases and all these other things that cause us to dehumanize um, others, just actively connect to people. It really makes a huge difference. You are reminding me of um, one of my favorite quotes. I, I'm pretty sure I've said it on the podcast. I know I've used it in sessions. Um, I've used it in coaching um, uh, from an author named Kurt Thompson. He's a, he's a psychiatrist who actually does more than just prescribe pills. He's, he's incredible. Um, he's like, feels like a philosopher. Um, but he says every, and he's kind of talking about babies, but he kind of also says like, basically it's still happening even if you're an adult. Um, but he said every, every baby comes into the world looking for someone looking for them. Mm. And when you made that statement about, um, and I feel emotional in this moment about people not being willing to look people in the eye, like our brains are wired for flourishing by someone looking for you. And, and that is attachment and that is where healing happens. Um, and it's also where the wounding happens, like when that is withheld or not offered. And so um, I love that. I love that your, your board member, this person is, is putting that at the forefront 
um, along with practical needs because there's a, there's a human that's having this experience. I, I want to ask a messy and complicated, mostly because I'm an extrovert and I'm finding my words as my mouth moves. Um, so you said people over policies and this whole conversation has been peppered with um, not specific, you know, unpacking of broken systems, but the idea that we have a lot of them. Um, and, you know, when I think of trying to um, solve some of these issues and help people and push back on systems, it feels a little bit like the child's book if you give a mouse a cookie. <laughs> yes. Because as you start, like, looking at everything that, like, holds this table up, it's not a pedestal. It's got, like, 17 legs holding it up. And one of those legs is actually attached to this table over here, and then this one's over here. So you have all of these systems that are in some ways upholding each other, and they're very complicated, and they all feed each other. And I, I love that you are people over policies, and I'm aware that, you know, you, you do a ton of activism and advocacy. Um, I'm, I'm curious how you make the decisions and if you make the decisions is when that crosses over and when it doesn't and, and how you, I, I don't know, balance might be a terrible word. I'm just curious about that process for you. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely been a challenge because I agree as you're talking about these systems, like, yeah, I think our patriarchal system must have been made by the Swedes. It's like an Ikea table that has 87 things and it's like not written. <laughs> and we're trying, to, not. <laughs> we're trying to assemble it and reassemble it and deconstruct it. And holy crap, it's super hard. But the interesting thing I found, like I remember there was uh, an image that was put out by a pro-life group years ago and it was this um, giant tanker ship and it said SS pro-life on it. And all of the different tanker vessels were like immigration, death penalty, um, nuclear war, like Second Amendment, right? Like it had all these different issues on it. And the SS pro-life was sinking because we were talking about too many things. And like, okay, cute anecdotal picture. I found the exact opposite to be true. When I start talking about these other issues and I talk about the prison industrial complex and I talk about, um, you know, lack of adequate medical care and... Um, death penalty and especially exonerations, things like that, right? Like all of these different things, um, education, poverty, alleviation, like all, all of them, they are all so intertwined that you start realizing so many of these things are actually symptoms, right? Like we're not getting to the root. And the more that we dig up the root, and I think that's actually why we left the whole uh, kind of legal side of the abortion debate, you know, to other people, because I think, you know, people who want to overturn Roe v. Wade or whatever, there's so much time and money and energy that goes into that. While women and children are literally suffering, can't find housing, can't find basic, uh, have their basic needs met. And also in my mind, that's a really low bar. Like, okay, you change the law, then what? Is it even enforceable? Like, have we done a good enough job of humanizing the unborn child and loving women? Well, like, I don't think so. Like, my bar is so much higher because I literally want to take down every single system and smash it because that's what feminists are supposed to do with patriarchy. And so it's so much more work than just changing a law here or there. Like, I want to create a post-Roe culture now, whether or not that law ever stays. Like, I want a place that humanizes all human beings. I want to get rid of for-profit prisons. I want, you know, massive um, immigration reform that humanizes human beings. Like, 
And I've just found they are also interconnected, like also interconnected yep. that it's like you're pulling this string and this giant ball is just unraveling. Um, a few years ago, back in 2017, we were part of the Women's March on Washington, um, which surprised me because a lot of people said, oh, pro-life feminists aren't going to be able to be there because, you know, a lot of the sponsors are pro-choice. And so we're, we're not welcome. Like articles are being written about how we weren't welcome. And oh, I, I remember reading those. I was like, this just got real spicy. Well, and I, I was remember, like, okay. I'm, I'm reading these articles about how we're not welcome, but I was like, has anybody actually tried? So maybe after some wine, like I went to their website and I was like, I applied for sponsorship. And to my amazement, we were approved as sponsors of the Women's March. So for four glorious days, we're like on their site, right? And then, um, and then some of the more prominent feminists out there, pro-choice feminists, um, caught wind of this because the Atlantic had done an article about how inclusive they were being, and they even have you know the pro-life feminists are going to be a part of it. And Twitter lost. How dare them? Yeah. Well, and like women are incredibly tart. Like we can, we are incredibly strong. We can stand up to anything except Twitter. So as soon as Twitter is on it, then game over. And so yes, <laughs> they ended up removing us from the march. And I remember the first few days, like I just finished a Skype call with some school, and I closed down my laptop, and all of a sudden the phone rings, and it was this woman from Rolling Stone, and she's like, "Hey, can I get a quote about you guys getting kicked out of the women's march?" And I had no clue. This was the first I was hearing of it. And so I was like, uh, like, give me a couple minutes, like, sure. And so I remember I went to Facebook and you'll, you'll be able to relate to this since we're like such like kids who grew up in the nineties. I posted this boys to men breakup song and I was like, it was a open letter to the women's March. And I was like, it's okay, boo. Like, I understand there was too much like heat on our relationship and like, we still love you. Like we'll still be around, blah, blah, blah. And it was just very, very stupid. And then, like, Megan McCain was on Fox News reading my stupid Facebook post. And a friend sent me a video of it. And I'm like, what world am I in right now? Like, that is so You, you blew up at that point. I mean, I, again, I was just starting to follow and connect with you. And I was like, destiny is just, like, kind of took off yeah, <laughs> in this moment. Weird, something totally weird happened from my MySpace page. Like, where all of a sudden, like, this was happening. And the funny thing is, like, so at first we only had very kind of far right um, conservative media, really, that was contacting us and Tucker Carlson and all them. And they're like, come on and bash the Women's March. Like, that was the whole point. Like, come on and tell us how monster, monstrous these uh, feminists are. And we just wouldn't do it because we agree with them about so many of the issues that they were taking on. And so my running joke became like, I owe them all a fruit basket. Like, they're the only reason I'm getting to do this interview with you right now, right? Like, it, and and then I would take the opportunity to explain the consistent life ethic, um, which is not something that a lot of, um, I'm just realizing in general, a lot of people are not familiar with this pro-life for the whole life. You are right. Um, and so then all of a sudden more left-leaning sites started coming out and Vice followed us and BBC and NPR. And they're like, we, we want to talk to you about this because this is different. And it's basically the kind of pro-lifers everybody's been saying they want forever. Like, we're the pro-lifers that also care about kids in foster care and immigration and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, we're right here. We've been here. I don't know where you've been. Like, we've, I guess we've been busy down at the border. I don't know. But, like, we, we have not crossed paths with you. And being able to talk about these issues, and it's that old adage that they care what you know when they know that you care, right? And so the fact that we were talking about these, like, in my mind, the little SS pro-life tanker was just, like, rising. It was almost like every single one of those um, canisters was full of balloons or something, helium balloons, because I just saw that the more that I made the connections 
of these systems of oppression and how they're also intertwined and how they're oppressing the most marginalized and vulnerable people, the most voiceless people, um, the more people started seeing why we care about the pro-life issue. And I get jokes all the time like, oh, crap, you guys are real feminists. Like, they think we're just joking and we just, like, stuck that word on there. I'm like, no, yeah, we're legit real feminists. I have purple hair, you guys. Like, it's it's happening. Um, but it is. It's so intertwined and intertwined and interconnected. So I think the messy question you were trying to get to is how do I vote, um, which also I feel free. Feel free to advise me. On or, that. like, who do you – I mean, yeah, that, that fits in the category. It's like how do you vote or – do, is there a way that you are kind of moving through the core values I've heard you state, right? Like in how you prioritize your efforts. At, is there a point where it crosses a line that you do start engaging policy? I'm just curious yeah. because that is what everybody else is sort of obsessed with is policy. Right. And so I'm curious if there's a line there because... I, I think you are inviting everybody to move through the world differently. So I'm going to oh, let yeah. you speak there's, there's definitely a lot of individual policies that I think we can focus on. Um, when it comes to like the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, that was a big one last year that basically said companies needed to take care of pregnant women and accommodate them. So if you're working at UPS or Amazon, whatever, like you shouldn't have to be lifting heavy boxes and doing this more laborious stuff for the duration of your pregnancy. Um, this is such a common sense policy. It was bipartisan bill. And yet it was conservatives who were shooting it down because they were saying, well, this is going to negatively impact small businesses, which isn't true. You guys, I'm sure, you know, have worked with small businesses and run a small business. Like you're a family when you're a small business. The people it's going to impact are going to be the Walmarts and the Amazons and the people who have to make big structural changes that accommodate pregnancy. That's absolutely what we need to do. Like it, it is, it is a good policy. Um, informed consent type policies are also, I think, very important. Like we've spoken about um, sonogram bills, which a lot of people see as this horrific thing, but really, it it many of them are just offering women the option to see a sonogram. And I think that if a woman um, cannot make a decision without being fully informed about what's happening, like because we're saying, oh, she's going to be too emotional. Her pretty pink little brain can't handle it. Like that to me is the opposite of feminism. Uh, we're going to be taking on adoption policies here shortly because there is a lot of very, very corrupt adoption practices that it blows my mind how similar um, the adoption industry and the abortion industry actually are in a lot of ways when it comes to kind of preying on vulnerabilities of women. And, you know, you've got, you know, 10 hours while you just had an epidural to sign over your rights to this child and make this decision. And, um, preying on vulnerable women in a lot of cases. And that's something that, you know, the pro-life movement is big about. We love adoption so much. And uh, we're about to do a podcast series because we've just been uncovering a lot of really, really unethical practices through different states that make it incredibly hard for women to um, revoke after they have signed over rights to their child, if they have a change of heart, if they realize that they can get the support that they need uh, to parent. It is they are, they are threatened, they are coerced, all these other things. And so there are definitely policies, I would say, on both sides where we're pissing off um, everybody just by saying, no, we need to be a more ethical society. We need to be doing stuff the right way. We need to be giving women more options, not fewer. We need to make sure that they um, are protected. And especially vulnerable people who are going through a crisis in a moment need to be protected. Like they need to be um, legally protected from these things. Um, and then a few years ago I had, so I, 
it was when Beto O'Rourke was running for, um, just for Texas, not for president, right? He yep. went a little crazy when he ran for president, you guys. But, like, when he was just running here in Texas, um, he was the bee's knees in a lot of ways. And he was talking about the suicide rate and uh, infant maternal mortality among women of color and a lot of pro-life policies that I actually thought uh, we needed to be focusing on. And I wasn't hearing his counterpart, um, the Zodiac Killer. I wasn't hearing him talk about any of those things. And so I basically told a friend who was a very prominent pro-lifer, like, I think I'm going to vote for Beto. And I remember he said, okay, you can, as if I needed his permission, by the way. He goes, okay, right. you can. He goes, but don't tell anybody. And like, as soon as those words washed over me, I was like, gross. Like, I don't, I don't do things where I can't tell anybody. And so I wrote off. I just don't know. What was he thinking? Did he know who he was talking to? I mean, right. Exactly. I mean, come on. And so I was just like, or maybe he knew that this would be the exact reaction. So I ended up writing an op-ed for the Dallas Morning News talking about how I felt like Beto actually was the pro-life vote. And it ended up going kind of viral because it was such like, yep. this person believes in extreme abortion policies. I, I totally disagree with him on that. But would I rather argue with him on this one issue and push him on this one issue uh, or this other person on 72 issues just because they agree with me on, on the pro-life issue and they're not actually doing a lot that creates a culture where a woman can choose life, right? Like Beto was doing more to actually support women so that life did become an option for them because for so many women it's not. And so I think that was my, that was my first canceling. I want to say, I think that was like my pro-life canceling, the first one that, that I went uh-huh. through. And it's funny because I found a, a Okay, so sometimes I Google myself. We all do it, okay? And so it was, yes, my do. daughter came home and she's like, my friends in school found your Wikipedia page. And I'm like, holy crap, like my kid's old enough that her friends are looking me up. Like what's on the internet about me? So I go and I had Googled my name and I found this article that it was written like nine months prior. And it's like in three months, nobody's going to know who Destiny Herndon De La Rosa is. And I just loved it so much. Like I'm glad I hadn't found it in that three months because that three months was dark, man. Like when it first happened, like, I definitely thought that uh, I had ruined everything, but I found it nine months later when we were doing really good stuff and we were growing and our numbers were even bigger and more people were kind of seeing where we're coming from. And the solution is not to vote against your your morals, but unfortunately we have this system where you can't, you're, you, we're all politically homeless, right? Like you can't really find someone who aligns with you completely. And I think that we're at the the beginning of building up a different, a different type of party. And I don't know if people will run in one of the two popular parties or as independents, but I think we're at the genesis of people kind of taking those blinders off and saying, I'm done compromising my morals for politics because I'm supposed to fit into one of two boxes. Like there is only so long where you can compromise like your basic human ethics. And we live in a social media world where we are seeing this. We posted a video the other day to our Facebook as we were crossing back to the U.S. from Mexico of a mom and a dad and two small children being deported at 11 o'clock at night in Juarez, Mexico to one of the most dangerous streets that is riddled with cartel and coyotes and brothels. And we watched this mom on the ground hyperventilating, like, I mean, completely losing it, which I would have been too. And I've never felt so powerless in my life. We sat there for 20 minutes in the line, like stopped waiting to go through, just watching this happen. We can't go out and give her any type of support or aid because, you know, the border patrol, uh, our volunteers said like, they'll, they'll have their guns drawn on you before you make it anywhere close to her. And I'm like, well, can we drop everybody off? And then you and I go back to the Mexico side and get her. And she said, no, because nighttime hours are 
for the cartels and coyotes, and they will literally follow us back to the shelter and harm us if we do this. And so all we could do was video probably one of the most horrific moments of this woman's life and try to get the word out and demand that Biden stop, um, you know, nighttime expulsions because that it's just it, like war is right now is on the same level as Syria when it comes to our travel warnings. Like it is one of the most dangerous places uh, along the border and yet vulnerable people and families and children, tiny children are being kicked out at this hour. And so that is an issue that I can care about. Even if maybe I've supported Democrats or Republicans, like I can still challenge anyone that I voted for and say, this is absolutely horrific and not okay. And I think that the more we have people who see this, because you can't, you can't look away now. It's everywhere. The crisis is everywhere. Um, I think you're going to find more people leaving political parties and saying, we have to have something better. We have to have something that truly addresses all of these issues. What I hear is, again, and you, you continue to be very congruent, Destiny, which those are my favorite kind of people. So welcome to, to, to the club. Um, it's very human versus being very box-oriented. Um, you're sitting in the nuance and the tension of when we look at policies and politics we also have to look for the humans, and that doesn't always fit into clear, delineated boxes. Um, and it's nuanced, and it's messy, and it's painful, and can be very divisive, especially, I think, in a culture that really wants either or versus and, you know? Um, and I hear, I hear you saying a lot of that, like this and and, not either or. Um, so I hear that as a, some of the barriers that you're knocking down and challenges that you're pushing back against, you know, the, hey, either or here, hey, what, what, what box? Um, curious what you would name as other challenges as you've, you've pushed back on the way that we have done things, the way that we are doing things, um, and having these conversations about, it's about so much more than just, you know, obviously abortion. It's about life. It's about humanity. It's about so many, um, I think, very, very important things. Um, curious what other challenges that you come across. Yeah. Um, I think they're vast because once you start pulling the thread, you do see it everywhere, um, as was mentioned. And I did a podcast a couple of years ago, and the guy said, if you had a magic genie and got one wish, like – rub the lamp, get one wish, would you wish for abortion to be eradicated? And I was like, no, not at all. Like, I would wish for dehumanization to be eradicated, right? Like, that, that is where world peace comes from. Like, it's this othering, this, like, yes, othering people uh, and not seeing them as human and being able to say, you know, all migrants are rapists and traffickers and drug dealers. Like, no, no get out of your box and see the actual people that are there. And, you know, the unborn are clump of cells. Like, no, they're not. There's actually a lot of beauty in the way that we're made and the science behind it. I'm agnostic, so I'm not political or religious when I address this. Like, this is completely a science-based thing. And I was raised, my mom had that, I think it was Life magazine, with, like, the photos from the 70s inside the womb. And so I grew up just seeing the science of this and think it's phenomenal the way we're created and how – 
everything had to come together. Here in Dallas, there's at the Perot Museum, they have this giant bench that says, um, the, what is it? The iron in your blood is from stars millions of miles away from trillions of years ago or something. It's some crazy quote like that. When you start thinking about just how amazing life is and how every single life from womb to tomb is precious because the fact that we have survived, you know, dinosaurs and plagues and genocide. I had this friend named David who used to tell a story of his grandfather um, being taken to Auschwitz and he was put in the train car. He's in the very last train car and there was this little pin that broke and all of a sudden the train car started rolling backwards while everyone else went to the concentration camp. And he said, I am literally here today because a two inch piece of metal broke. Like that is the legacy. So it's not even just that one person, it is generations of people. And so anytime we have violence in society that ends a human life from, you know, George Floyd to the child in the womb, like to, to migrants who are dying in the desert, right? Like you're not just losing that one human life. You are losing all of the, the generations that are going to come from that one life. And I think that is what we're fighting for. Like, how do we see these lives as precious and not just other groups, right? Like, and not just dehumanizing them, but each one of these human beings has overcome so much just generationally in order to even be here. And the future of their legacy is going to go even longer. Like, I think that's when you put the value on human life in the right perspective. Um, and that's why I can't just care about abortion. I can't just care about, you know, death row. Like, I have to care about all of it because it is it is literally that big of a miracle that any of us are here. Let's get, um, let's get philosophical for a second, which is just like what you do. I don't know if you would label it that, but that's how I experience that's it. That's so funny. Um, I say that I hate philosophy all the time. I hate talking. I hated philosophy classes, but I, I find that I enjoy having these conversations. And so, yeah. Um, when we think about human nature and um, how we experience each other and we've talked about systems and we talked about like changing the way we move through um, the world with others, like what, what human need or pain or layers of these things do you think are the big players that keep people from moving toward not agreement, because I, I don't even hear you asking for that. Not necessarily agreement, but like a willingness to have the dialogue differently, a willingness to get outside of the box. Like in your experience, and, and I just witness you having conversations just online all the time in this really beautiful way. What do you, what do you think they are? Like what is what are the pain points and the human needs that maybe if we paid attention to those, we could call people into having the dialogue and the conversations better. Yeah. Um, so to be philosophical about it, my husband's gotten super into like Eastern religions and stuff. And mm -hmm. so he talks a lot about ego, that ego is the thing that we always need to be breaking down. And it's funny because I also see that like I was raised Protestant and the original sin, right. With Adam and Eve in the garden was totally ego. It was, it was the serpent being like, hey, don't you want to be as smart as God? Don't you want to know everything, right? And so when we realize that ego is at the crux of so much, and we all have it, like we can all feed it, um, 
or you can feed that humility side. Like, I think that's a huge barrier because nobody wants to look stupid in an argument. And so people will dig their heels in and be defensive rather than saying, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe I need to listen here. And I joke all the time that, like, the universe has this way of humbling me because I had done an interview with Vice during the Women's March, and we were doing this walk and talk, which is basically where you pretend like you're having a casual stroll down a street while three cameramen are actually walking backwards in front of you. And I'm Sounds easy. Yeah, super, super cash. Uh, and I'm such a mom that I'm watching them. Like, And we it's not like we shut down the street. Like, They are bumping into people and fire hydrants and all this as they're filming. And I'm so nervous, but I'm trying to have this authentic conversation with this reporter. And we do it, and we wrap it up, and it's good. And they still have their cameras rolling. And right then, this bus goes by. And this kid on the bus was like, Destiny, you're my hero. And to put this in context, a week before, no one had a clue who I was. I was completely, like, obsolete in, in the movement. Like, nobody had a clue who I was. Now, all of a sudden, I'm on all these media channels, and somebody screams that I'm their hero. And so my response was, gross, get better heroes. Like, I literally yelled this back. And the reporter was like, is this weird for you? And I'm like, this is super weird for me. Like, honestly, I love when people recognize me and come up and they're like, are you new wave feminist? Like, that's the perfect version of me because they don't know who I am. They don't know my name, but they know our message. And I think that's what's really important. But so the reporter says that back to me. She's like, is this weird for you? And I'm like, it's just so strange. Like, I don't like it. Like, I don't. I don't like that because I was raised with a mom who, and God bless her, I was so mad she used to do this when I was little, but anytime I got an A or something good happened, she would say, I'm really proud of you. So she'd give me 0.3 seconds to feel proud and she'd go, but remember, God did that through you. And so like, I was never able to take credit for something and I grew up with like trash self-esteem and I'm like, this is all my mom's fault. But now I'm actually like, that was one of the best things she could have ever done for me because I don't, I see the pitfalls of ego for so many people. So back to this reporter where we're talking about it. And I'm like, yeah, she's so weird. And right then this humongous acorn comes flying off the tree and literally smashes me right in my two front teeth. And like, it, it, like shatters on me. I'm spitting out like bits of acorn. Oh that I definitely just knocked my two front teeth out. Like has <laughs> roll of all this somewhere that they can use one day when I have a scandal. Like, I mean, it was all recorded and I just turned to her as I'm spitting out acorn and I'm like, and that's the way the universe keeps me humble. Like anytime I start to feel special, <laughs> it's like I'm <laughs> diarrhea on stage or something. That hasn't happened yet, but I know that it could happen at any point. And so like, I always try to keep like a very humble thing because that is one of my like crappy agnostic prayers is I never want to get to a place where my ego overtakes me and I'm not able to be a human being and see a human being and have a conversation and just wear sweatpants and be like a regular person. Cause I love sweatpants so hard, you guys. And like, I need that to be, to be my life because I've seen so many people fail at that dialogue because of ego, because it is, mm. I have to be right. You're embarrassing me right now. Um, think about it with interpersonal things. When we get in a fight with you know, our partners, um, and we're wrong, which has happened to me two times, like in 16 years. Um, and both times that I was wrong, both times I, um, I became hysterical, like literally. And I try never to use that word as a feminist. We're not supposed to use the word hysterical, but both times, because I was so wrong, I like tried to overcompensate by just getting louder in, in what I was saying and just more, you know, extra, in order to defend myself because I knew I wasn't right. Uh, but yeah, like me just being so extra about this because I knew that I was in the wrong and I hadn't thought out 
my argument. And that's where that defensiveness came from was completely a place of pride. And I can't look stupid. I don't want to look stupid. And I have to be right. I have to be right so hard. And I think the second that we release that and say, maybe this is a learning opportunity. Maybe this is something I can learn from and I can grow from. And um, not, again, not trying to convince people and win people over, but just truly listening to their hearts. Like, walking in that humility, I think, does us a world of good and protects us mm-hmm. from um, becoming stagnant in our beliefs and never being able to grow. Totally. I'm pretty sure, Destiny, you have outlined. Uh, what, do we, what do you say? I don't know if it's 100% three-fourths of our values for our all things. Uh, Aspen yeah. House, go go look at our website. And go like, look at our and humility, aspirational, um, team, team ownership. That's awesome. Y'all are doing good I work. Love it. I'm I love happy, it. I'm happy to hear there are people out there fighting for those things. Yes. Destiny, thank you so much for your time. For just sharing you with us and with our listeners and with the world. Um, We have a couple of parting questions that we ask everyone. Um, What would you like our audience to take away from today's conversation? What would you like to leave them with? Um, I would say just love people bigger. The people who you who you normally ignore, go out and love them really big this week. Find, find a way to do that. Just some, insane act of kindness and generosity towards somebody um if we get in the habit of doing that it's it's amazing how much it spreads to others so just love people well love them big okay what was your takeaway from our conversation today ma'am my takeaway um is that i should have asked you before we started if i'm allowed to cuss on your podcast because usually i do uh make sure about that i definitely said the word diarrhea um i <laughs> i'm now going through all the things i'm horrified about so i'll stay awake at night great about this. but while i'm awake at night thinking about this i'm gonna go to y'all's website and check out the stuff you're doing because it sounds it sounds phenomenal like Yes, teaching people to just live in humility and have those real nuanced conversations. Like, y'all are going to change the world. Well, we want to be partners with you in changing it. I'm here for it. Let's do it. Destiny, thank you so much. This was so special for me. Thank you for having me on. This was a really good time. I knew that that was going to be a lot of fun. I, um, you know, really have been admiring what Destiny has been doing. Um, and again, what we wanted to focus on today was less about the what and more about the how. And I, I really appreciate her willingness to um, talk about that and, and where that's been hard and where that's been challenging, but where it's been so fruitful. So I, I, I really appreciate her time. What was your takeaway? Yeah, I think to your point, I, it's, it's the how and hearing her how, um, her heart, um, her people, I just, her, her compassion. Um, and I think unwavering 
ability to not lose sight of the person in front of her as, as a goal. Mm-hmm. And I like I know that no one's perfect. I mean, she would say the same thing. But just that that, that is just gripped for her. That I'm, I'm just not going to lose sight of the person in front of me, whether we agree or disagree. And just her sense of compassion um, and ability to for her to be empathetic and kind and um, even with folks who, you know, disagree. I just think her how and just hearing that, um, I mean, it's something you and I appreciate as values that we have, but um, just to see how that's executed in her life and work um, is just really, really inspiring um, and life-giving to just have that conversation with mm-hmm. her today. So what about you? What are you taking away? My takeaway and my hope for the listeners is that just the beauty of experiencing a conversation where the goal was to find where do we overlap in our passions and values and heartbeats and where we don't, we can give those space to breathe and the the goal is to not dehumanize a person who's in a very different space than I find myself. And I think she practices that. I think it is our heartbeat to practice that. And I experienced it. And so I'm feeling very, um, like I'm celebrating in my soul that we, mm-hmm. we got to do that. And my hope is that the listeners would go, I can do this too. I can hold my deeply felt and held values and I can hold space for someone who's different than me and I can allow there to be places where we agree and can team up and places where we are different and in those differences nobody has to dehumanize the other yeah there is just such beauty in that process and so that's Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a gift. So, so full of gratitude. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Arable Podcast is hosted by Jenna Mountain and Kimberly Galindo. And edited and co-produced by Chris Vargas and hosted on Podbean. You can find us on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Visit our website, arablepodcast.com, and find Arable Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. You can also find both of us on Facebook. You can find me, Kimberly Galindo, on Instagram at the Kimberly Galindo. And me, Jenna Mountain, on Instagram at the Jenna Mountain. 